0: So we'll be beginning in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. All right, chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the point in what we are saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For... A tent was prepared and the first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that had budded, and tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Sonia, for reading much for us today. Okay? Lots to go through today, which is a good thing. Well, hey, if you are new with us, uh, we're especially glad to have you here. This is maybe your first time gathering with us as a a gathered church community, as Church of the City. And maybe you're here today and you don't um, adhere to the teachings of the Christian faith. You don't identify yourself as a Christian. Uh, You're not a follower of Jesus. We wanna say welcome to you too. And and naturally, there are a number of things that we've done here today that that are probably a bit odd, Uh, singing collectively together as a group, um, reading the scriptures like this. But hey, we just want you to know that these are the things that that matter to us as God's people and we want to know better. If we say that we follow Jesus, we want to know, therefore, what Jesus says and what Jesus would have for us and so that's much of the reason why we do it. We hope you'll stick around. We hope that you'll continue to invest yourself in finding out more what is this Christian faith about and we'd love you to ask questions. Uh, We don't in any way ever want to give the the assumption that we just kind of preach it and then you don't have any opportunity to talk about it and we would love to engage more deeply in this conversation conversation around faith, around uh, asking of questions of, is there a God? I mean, many of us need to come to that place ourselves when we come to the place of believing in God. And so we want to engage with you in that. And we're so happy that you've joined us today. Uh, before we jump specifically into the text uh, that we'd be going through today, why don't we take a moment to pray and let's just ask God that he would uh, show us new things today that maybe we have not known before and that then we'd leave today desiring to apply the things that we've learned. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you are a loving Father. And God, many of us sit here and we don't actually believe that. And so God, move in us today your Spirit who can teach us and show us that we have a Father who is loving. And God, maybe today we don't feel that love because of experiences or situations or the state of the world. I pray that we would be open today and that your Spirit would do a work in us. I pray that we would come to our end of ourselves today. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, uh, just over a week ago, I spent some time in California, and uh, many of you would be like, oh, California, that's a nice place to go at this time of year. And actually, the weather wasn't, wasn't great. I mean, it was sunny, but it was actually pretty cool. its about 15 or 16 degrees, so uh, it wasn't enormously enjoyable from that perspective. I was really hoping for some warm weather. I brought shorts, and then I didn't, wasn't able to wear my shorts, so I was wearing the same pair of pants a lot. But, you know, you realize that when you go away places. But I was in California because I was taking part in a workshop called this Ultimate Leadership Workshop. And at one point in the, in the seminar, in the session, in the workshop, uh, it was taught by two Christian psychologists by the name of Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. Uh, their most well-known book is a book called Boundaries, and they were, they were teaching these workshops. And uh, at one point, they put the, they, Dr. John Townsend said, um, he, he said this statement, and then he said, I want you to think what your immediate response is to this statement. The statement was, we need to need. We need to need. Now, I'm not going to go around the room and ask everybody what their response was, but this was mine. No, I don't. No, I don't. Why do I need to need? I can take care of myself. I'm responsible. I can be strong. We need to need. Now, my response revealed something in me, and it's actually something that's been going on in my life for a little while. Now, the best way that I've been able to describe this to other people uh, close to me who I'm in relationship with is, is as if it's a house. And so I have a picture of a house that I want to show you. And this house, um, as you can see, structurally, it's not in a great position, right? Now, think about living inside that house and think about probably noticing that your floor is starting to sag in certain places, uh, but maybe you say, oh, it's not all that bad. Right? And then you go to another part of the house and it's like, whoa, it's kind of shifty here. But, you know, it'll be okay. And then eventually some things start to happen and you're like, oh my goodness, I, th- I think there's maybe something going on here. And so what happened to me while I was away is, is I, it helped identify that I have like significant cracks in my foundation and that I need to need. That, there, that there's parts of me that I'm like, I, I don't want to need, but I need to need. I don't have it all. I don't, I don't have what it ultimately takes. Now, two words that I'm going to help us understand today describing this is the word sufficient and then the word insufficient. And the word insufficient, uh, if we we're to look at other words in a thesaurus for insufficient, are inadequate, not enough, too little, too few, too small, deficient, poor, or scant. I think we get the idea, insufficient, not enough, too little, whereas sufficient is, is enough, is adequate, is plenty of, is ample and abundant. As you look at this image of the house, this house does not have enough what it needs. It's insufficient to continue an, an entire life because if this foundation continues to crumble, then the whole house will ultimately crumble. And whether you recognize it or not, and for me it was this most recent realization of a particular crack in my foundation, all of us will come to a place in our lives where we're in the same situation. Where we realize, I am insufficient. I don't have all that it requires. I am too little for the job or the task that is at hand. We need to need. No, I don't. Now, our author of Hebrews, the section that was read for us earlier, is making a point, and he's making three particular points in the entire section that was read for us, and he's pointing out three insufficiencies in the life of Jewish religion and tradition and thought. If you've been here, you'll remember that Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians, people that have converted from the Jewish faith or Jewish understanding of the world into the Christian understanding, i.e. Jewish Christians. And many of them are feeling intense pressure to revert back to their Jewish teachings, particularly the teachings from when they were children and growing up. And there were a number of things within the Jewish worldview or in with the religion of Judaism that were very significant, that were, that were signposts, that were markers of someone's health in their relationship with God. And as you've been following with us, if you have or if you haven't, that's okay, last week James talked about Melchizedek, who served as a high priest with Moses, who, who stood in the place for Moses, who blessed Moses, and he made the point that Jesus blesses us. And we are blessed by Jesus, and Melchizedek points to Jesus. But the larger point that our author is trying to make in this first section is pointing out an insufficiency. And so the first insufficiency is the insufficiency of the high priest. Now, some of us are like, oh, cool, like, what, what do you mean by high priest? That doesn't seem to contextually make a lot of sense for me. But let me just say that suggesting to a Jewish person who has been raised in the tabernacle system, then in the temple system, around the high priest, telling them that that high priest is insufficient is significant. It's like saying what you have trusted in for your mediation or the connecting point between you and God is no longer necessary, and you're kind of going, no longer necessary. This is all we've known. We have continued high priests. We had a lineage of the Levites. They were serving in that place for us. What do you mean? The, the priests are insufficient. But in proving these priests' insufficiency, what the orator does is points out Jesus' sufficiency, the abundance of what Jesus provides in comparison with the high priests. And so he makes a number of comments here about Jesus that are really important for us to understand as we begin to apply it to our lives today. So how is Jesus sufficient? Because if I'm going to believe that these high priests, these special people, are insufficient, I need to know how Jesus is greater or how he is sufficient. And so the first point that the author makes about Jesus' sufficiency is saying he's the perfect high priest— if you actually go back to chapter 7, verse 28 and on, we read a son, Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. We have such a high priest. Now we ask the question, how is he perfect? Well, Jesus was perfect in that he never sinned. So he's different than all the other high priests who needed to go through a ritual cleansing before, offering, before giving an offering to God on behalf of the people. He needed to cleanse himself before he did. Jesus as we study the scriptures, presents him to be morally perfect. He didn't need ritual cleansing for himself. He never sinned. And also, he gives his complete work on the earth by offering a way between us and God. So he first says, he's the perfect high priest, completely different than all of the other high priests. They were faulty, This Jesus we're speaking about is a perfect one. He's able to do what they could not do. Secondly, he's both a priest and a king. He's the one, as we read in 8 verse 1, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And now this is particularly unique. The men who ruled as king in Israel were not those who served as priests. So here we see that Jesus is not only serving as the priest, he's also serving as the king. A role that, for an actual high priest, was not something they would do both of. They'd only do one. So he's both priest and king. Then thirdly, really interesting detail that he includes for us, and again, verse 1 of chapter 8, he sat down. We have a side priest, one who is seated. Now, the reason that I say this is interesting is because contextually, Levitical priests never sat down inside the tabernacle. There were no seats, and they were not invited to do so. Because when someone sat, it represented a finished work. But only Jesus brings the finished work. Purification has ultimately been made. So when it says Jesus is seated, it's the work is done. The priests weren't able to do that because they knew that they needed to go back again and again and again and make more offerings. Jesus is seated. The work is done. Another point, point four, how is Jesus sufficient enough? 8 verse 1, he reigns with power. By sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, it is a seat of power and authority. It's in a supremely exalted position. It's not just like any seat, it's the seat. And then lastly, Jesus serves in the true tabernacle. 8 verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The minister in the holy places of God's presence in heaven, continually interceding for us, not just once a year. This is significant. You see what he's doing? He's poking holes in this worldview of Judaism. He's saying, you've put so much, rightfully so, because it was talked about, but now you're continuing in your Christian belief to put so much onus upon these people. And what you don't realize is that by by highlighting and by exalting these people, you're missing out on what Jesus is and who he is and how much greater he is. Now, to apply this for us, I think think there's a, a natural point that we need to make. Is he's pointing out the insufficiency of people the insufficiency of people, the not-enoughness of people. Have you thought about this recently? Now, you might say in objection, well, I need people, and I am with you. I mean, Adam felt alone before Eve was given, and that wasn't just an aloneness. He was looking for companionship. It wasn't just about finding a mate. It was about companionship. So God seems to make us with some sort of need, a need for other human beings. We need each other. But on this side, of the, in this broken world in which we live, we live in the reality that people are not enough. And sometimes the people that we are closest to are the ones that hurt us the most. You know, recently, and I haven't made a, a lot of comment about it, and I wanted to address a bit of it today, we have been... Witness many of us to people sharing their stories of sexual abuse and sexual assault. I know of people in this room that have experienced that. Many times, and, and some of us maybe don't think about this often, other than, you know, we see someone coming forward and sharing it. But I was reading some statistics this week, and, and as I was reading the statistics, it's actually hard to actually quantify the statistics because many survivors don't actually come forward. And some of us have been hearing these stories, but it, it is suggested, a rough estimate projects that 80% of sexual assault or incidents occurred occur in the home, and 80% of the assailants are friends or family of the victim. That's significant. To to put some numbers to it, in 2014 alone, there were 22 reported incidences of sexual assault for every 1,000 Canadians age 15 and older, which represents 636,000 self-reported incidences. And of all reported only two to four were actually false reports. But it is estimated of every hundred incidents of sexual assault, only six are actually reported to the police. It's suggested that one in four North American women will be sexually assaulted during their lifetime. What does does this point out? Well, it points out the insufficiency uh, around um, the protections around uh, sexual activity, but it also points out the insufficiency of people. People that you ought to trust who abuse that trust, who abuse that connection. People are not enough. We need more. Maybe, you know, going a little bit shallower than the depth of this example, you can think of maybe family members that turns their back on you or friendships that you have in which your friend backstabbed you. Maybe you asked somebody for a favor and they didn't come through for you and they promised that they would. I had a couple of friendships in high school. I completely backstabbed some of those friendships. We've all known this. We've experienced this. And it's pointed out the insufficiency of people. Yet here in this text, we're seeing in contrast, this points to the incredible sufficiency, the enoughness found in Jesus. God putting on flesh to show us what he is like and to show us the ideal model of what it actually means to be human. The insufficiency of people versus the sufficiency of Jesus. There is no comparison. Inadequacy, adequacy. People have backstabbed you. Jesus will not backstab you, He can be trusted. So, our order is trying to point out this first insufficiency. The first insufficiency related to high priests or people. Then the second insufficiency in chapter 8, verses 6 to 13, he's pointing out the insufficiency of the old covenant. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll go into more detail about the covenant. But what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement or contract established for relating to someone. It is the terms of a relationship. An example would be a marriage is a covenant, establishing how a husband and a wife will relate to one another. Now, the Old Testament, we have a few covenants that are given. We actually have four. And the covenant that our author is relating here in this this chapter is to the covenant that was given at Sinai. This is the third of the four covenants that God makes in the Old Testament, the one in which the Jewish listeners are building their Judaic system on, which the author is saying is an invalid way to God and salvation now because of Jesus. Now, think about how significant that is, too, if you're a Jew, you mean the system that we've been living under is insufficient? How could that be? It's what we've been doing for years. You want us to abandon it? What is the author saying? It is insufficient. Why? The answer, verse 9 of chapter 8, is the faithlessness of the people. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. So what was the problem with the old covenant? People were unable to live by its standards. They continued to fail. And as God said, he said, if you live by it, I'll remain faithful. If you do not live by it, I will no longer be faithful. So the old covenant is insufficient. So what does he promise? He promises a new covenant that is going to be mediated by Jesus. Fantastic. Well, what are the promises of the new covenant mediated by Jesus? And many of these things are ways in which we now as Christians just regularly live and take things for granted. But here, the author is saying, hey, you who live by this old system, there's a new system now, and it's great. Well, what are the promises of the new covenant? Well, one, the Spirit's presence. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In the new covenant, God makes provision for human weakness, promising not only to give us the law, but to actually place the law within us. By giving us the Holy Spirit, he promises to work faithfulness into us. The old covenant could not give us a new heart to obey God, but the new covenant can. So that's the first one. The second one is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12 of chapter 8, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now this is two parts, okay? And I want to break these down for us. The first part, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. God will forgive wickedness. He will be the merciful sacrifice. He will be the spotless sacrifice. So he forgive you for every wrong that you have done. Wow! Wow! amazing but then the second part I will remember their sins no more think about this God forgets your sins how many of us live in guilt and shame because we can't put away our sins yet here we are told that God forgets our sins he puts them away I will remember their sins no more it's amazing Of this new covenant. And then thirdly, promise of this new covenant, I will be their God. We read, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Two parts again. God promises to be our God, but then secondly, God promises that we shall be his people. It's amazing. Now, some of us are sitting here going... I I get these things. Think about the craziness of this, that God wants to be in a relationship with you. A perfect, holy, almighty, transcendent, all-powerful God sees your life, sees everything about it, both the good and the bad, and here we read that he wants to have a relationship with you. It's, it's bizarre. It's the sort of thing that you think about and you're like, I can't continue thinking about this because it just makes no sense to me. At least that's sort of where I sit with it. It's like, why? It's amazing. But here's what I believe the application here for, for us here is related to the insufficiency of earthly promises and commitments or covenants, right? The insufficiency of the old covenant. It's not enough. It, it's inadequate. And many of us understand and, and we struggle with the sufficiency of a new covenant represented by Jesus and the fact that our whole entire lives are maybe we're identifying with the fact that people have broken promises and commitments and covenants to us it it, it plagues our identity we're like why would an all holy God want to be committed to me forever when people around me don't seem to want to be committed to me forever You know, I think it's specifically related to our missional communities and there are groups of people within our church family that are, this is the church being the church out in the city, ministering, loving on people, loving on each other, sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And each one of these missional communities at the beginning of a year, which we sort of say is in September, October, make a commitment to each other. And it's a commitment of saying, I will be there for you. I'll show up at that soccer practice. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever it needs for you to be cared for. I'll, I'll help you get groceries. I'll, I'll watch your kids or whatever it is. It's like, you know, we make this enormous laundry list. And I remember a few years ago, like we were like just crazy with our commitments. We're like, it was essentially like we're going to have no life apart from our MC. And we were like, we're all in. Nothing else. Just you guys. Well, you know life happens. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think, and I continue to say that we need to be all about each other in our MCs. We need to reorient our lives around one another truly. But, you know, we revisited our commitment in about April. And we're sort of like, well, oh, we didn't do that one very well. Oh, we uh, really did not show up there. Oh groceries are not being bought for each other. Oh, we're sort of shallow in how much we're actually being vulnerable with each other. And you realize, even in the context of the missional community, the people that you're living out life with, that you even had a conversation with, about like, we are going to be for each other. And then you realize, my goodness, we are terrible. There's like this inside reality of, I am bad at committing. Right? I am bad at, at holding fast to commitments. Does that resonate with you? Maybe you're like, no, you know, I'm I'm pretty good. Have there has you ever let anybody down? Have you ever made a commitment and then not fallen through? Many of us have, and, and many of us are plagued by that. Maybe it was a marriage commitment that somebody made to you. And they didn't they didn't hold up their end. They actually treated you really, really poorly. And you're no longer in that relationship. These are hard, hard things. Many of us, I think, have become very skeptical of anybody that that claims promises, right? I mean, um, politics are easy to to use as examples, but I I think of in churches too, where we, we can make promises of this is where we're gonna be in a year, or this is what we'd like to do, or this is the sort of leadership that we're gonna have, or these are the sorts of commitments that we're gonna make to you, our members, or this is gonna matter to us, and then you start like doing life in a church community, and it's like, I thought they said those things mattered. Where are we at now? We all struggle with commitment and promise. So you would think that it would be natural for us that even as we hear that God is sufficient in his covenant keeping promise with you to kind of go, yeah, but I need to need. I don't want that. I'd rather do it on my own. I'd rather make it up myself. Yet here, in contrast, this points to the incredible promises of Jesus in the new covenant. That he will place his spirit within us. That he's going to forgive our sins eternally. And God's identification with us and our response to him eternally. Like, it's mind-boggling. It truly is. And if you sort of just need to sit in that, like, confusion, that's a great place to just sit in. Like, how does that work? You may never know. But it's the crazy commitment that our God makes to us his people. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is where I'd challenge you to maybe lean in. To so what promises have people made to you and do they hold up their end? And have you ever experienced a love of someone else who holds up his end? Now, you might say, well, I don't agree with that because there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world and God clearly didn't hold up his end. And that's a, that's, a, that's a legitimate question. And, you know, we can have a conversation about that. I think there's a, a few reasons, both philosophically to, to disagree, to suggest that maybe if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and transcendent, he has particular reasons why he's allowed something to continue that you might not understand. You can't have it both ways, that God's not allowed to do that, yet he has to be able to do this. But God holds up his end. And we are recipients of this covenant now. Those of us that trust that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, who have experienced God's presence, those of us who understand the forgiveness of sin. These are things that we daily know and understand. And then, lastly, the third insufficiency that our author is pointing out is the insufficiency of the tabernacle. And this is verses 1 to 10. So some of us are like, what is the tabernacle? And I know I've used that, that word a couple of times as we've been talking here. So what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a mobile place to meet with God, an earthly sanctuary of the Old Covenant, a place actually where access to God was barred, which is in contrast to what we know about in the New Covenant. So some of us live as if the tabernacle is still a thing, okay? And I'm just going to like poke the bear maybe. Okay, so let's be ready, okay? Some of us think that church, this, is the only place we meet with God, right? And maybe not like we'd say like mentally, no, like I can like meet with God anywhere, but in our lives, practically, this is the only place you come to meet with God. Okay, this is what the author is saying. That's insufficient way of thinking. And it's insufficient because... The separation between the holy place and the most holy place is completely open now. That in the old covenant, you had the, the holy place where priests could regularly go into, but then you had the most holy place where the, the, the presence of God was and they could only go in once a year. And the thing that separated the two was this veil. Andrew Murray writes, the veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot, dwell together. they cannot dwell together. So herein lies the insufficiency of the tabernacle. We can't go into the most holy place. We can't be in the presence of God. We need a way made for unholy people to be in the presence of a holy God. So what he's pointing out to these Jewish Christians is, if you still lean into the tabernacle, then you're saying that access to God has not been granted to you. And that's a significant shortfall in your way of thinking. So what is the point that he makes? Jesus has made a way for you. Now here's some incredible imagery. Matthew 25, verse 51. What happens when Jesus dies? Okay, Some of us have maybe not recognized this before. What happens when Jesus dies? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, some of us have read that as a detail before and just been like, whoa, like, that's kind of like weird timing. Jesus dies, the curtain tears. Oh, shoot, they'll have to replace that curtain. No! No! The curtain does not need to be replaced. A holy God now is able to dwell with an unholy people through the perfect blood sacrifice of Jesus. That's how significant this is. It's huge. A way has been made. The way you've been living is no longer necessary. Look at what he's done, he's made a way the space of a holy God and unholy people, there's no separation any longer through Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. It's so good. But what this points to is the insufficiency of human attempts to be good, to become ritually enough, to go through enough motions that I can get myself into that most holy place. If only I did more of this. And then religion... Every religion seeks to create terms of a contract or agreement. You hold up your end, and God will hold up his. How can I access the most holy place? And this can be both in uh, what would be known as very sort of um, religious um, uh, environments, both in the Christian faith that are highly about a whole bunch of laws that you need to follow, but then it can also be in other world religions, in which you hold up your end of the bargain, your God or the gods will be faithful to you in letting you in but it's about your obedience, your commitment. And this is where the Christian gospel is completely different. That says you will never be able to do enough to get yourself in. Only Jesus can rip open that curtain. Only Jesus has ripped open that curtain. Only Jesus can bring you into the perfect presence of a holy God. You can't do it. You're not enough. You're insufficient. No, I'm not. I am enough. I can do it. I am strong. Now, you know, I'm sort of belittling it, but that's what I do. Right? It's a little kid inside of me. It's like, I can do it. I can be holy enough. I can be holier than them. Oh, wow. That's a rough thing to think when you put it outside, right? Of you? You're like, ooh, ooh. I can serve enough. I'll be more committed than everybody else in my MC, my missional community. Then they'll really like me, and I'll be really holy. Put it away. Put that. Put that away. You're insufficient. Only Jesus is sufficient. Only He. Only He is enough. So what do we do? (laughs) What shall we do? I love um, the writing of, a, of an author and pastor named Scott Sauls, and he has a weekly b- blog that comes out. And this week, he, was, he wrote a blog called What If? And it was sort of, what if we did this as the Christian church? How amazing would the world look? And he got to the end of it, and you're like, yeah, if we did more, we'd be great. But he very quickly, at the end of this, as the, sort of that weight is piled on of a doer like me, like, I'm going to go change the world, right? Right? He writes, The ultimate responsibility and power for change has been squarely placed on Jesus' shoulders. Jesus and only Jesus holds the key to unlock the flourishing of people, places, and things that he not only created, but sustains and restores and will ultimately perfect in glory. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. I'm going to read that first part again, okay? The ultimate responsibility and power for change has been squarely placed on Jesus' shoulders. Jesus and only Jesus holds the key to unlock the flourishing of people, places, and things that he not only created but sustains and restores and will ultimately perfect in glory. Oh, that's rich. And this is where I daily need to come before God's throne of grace and say, okay, all of the responsibility that I have been putting here, forgive me. I thank you that you have forgiven me, and now you forget it. Let me now just take this and go, oh, it's yours. So I want you to be thinking about what is the weight that you carry today? What is the responsibility that you're burdened by? What is the thing that you think, if I don't do this, it's going to fall apart? If I don't show them that I can do it, they're not going to think much of me. And take that off and place it on the shoulders of Jesus. He has it. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, this is what that looks like. Less of me, more of you. I commit my life to following you and what you have done for me rather than living in it myself. My counselor said to me this week, she said, Matt, imagine the attitude of striving in the presence of a holy God. Can they actually coexist? I said to my DNA this week, it's it's like when my, son brings me a picture, right, that he's, he's drawn. And both of my sons now, they're drawing pictures and making sticker things. They bring it to me like, look, it's this. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Your interpretation, I suppose. But as a father, you, you're naturally like, this is the best, this is the best. He gave me a picture, he's trying. But it's nothing compared to a Picasso or a, like Van Gogh or any of these sorts of things, right? But Think about that as us in the presence of a holy God. We're trying to bring out all these things that we're doing for him. And he's like, would you stop? Just rest. Come into my arms. Let me love on you. Let me show you what it means to give everything over to me. It'll take time. It'll take your whole life. But trust me every step of the way, I rebel in my heart and say, No, give me the three easy steps. Come here, come on. If this is what you need to do today, if you need to remind yourself of whose presence you sit in, stand in, do life in, may that be the case. If you've never committed yourself to this teaching of Jesus, we'd invite you to commit yourself to it. To say, Jesus, I want to trust in you, I don't want to trust in my own attempts at being good. I want to trust in what you have done for me. May I place every responsibility that I have taken upon myself under your shoulders and lead me in the way that I should go. I need you. We need to need. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much that you are inside of us and that you sustain us and that you give us life. And God, I I know that the three things I spoke of today of the sufficiency of people. I look to myself. I look to others to fill voids that others were never created to fill and are actually broken to fill. I think of commitments or promises that I've made to others and the ways in which that I have failed to meet up with those promises and commitments and the way others have failed me and their promises and commitments to me. God, I think of my own human attempts to be good. And God, there's so much there. There's self-righteousness. This judgment. And so I thank you, Father, that, that you have made a way for me despite these attitudes and behaviors to be in your presence. And that's through sending your son to take my place so that I could spend eternity with you. And I thank you for the regular mediation and the intercession that Jesus is for me to you. God, I want to pray for everyone here today. And God, some of us are just sort of exploring or checking out or not really sure what this is all about. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would make it abundantly clear in their hearts today who you are. May the promise of the new covenant, this presence of the Holy Spirit be real to us today. May we experience you. And I pray as well, Lord, that, that Lord, that if we are really desiring, Lord, to change, that we would also take the steps for that to happen surrounding ourselves with supportive people. So thank you, Jesus, for what you've done, the responsibility that's on your shoulders. We cannot carry it. Only you can carry it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, If you would come forward, we have people who are gonna be at the front here we would love to pray with you. I'll be here, Spencer will be here. As I've said before too, if you just feel like I want to go up there and, and pray for Pastor Matt and Pastor Spencer, like come and pray for us. You know, I've shared some like pretty significant, I think, realities and realizations in my own life from the last couple of weeks. I love your prayer. I and mean, we give this last bit of time that we're spending here uh, to the sole focus of what Jesus is doing and what he's done.